ideas and insights provides a rich analytical framework for thinking about some of the most pressing issues of our times. Our goal is to promote a dialogue about the common good and forge a consensus on what we owe each other as fellow human beings. Engaging, enlightening, ideas and insights offers original and bold vistas for making sense of the world. Join us weekly here on this television station. I am Badrina Thrao, your host for Ideas and Insights. Hello and welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am Badrinath Rao, your host for this program. In this episode, we will discuss a topic that is a part of our national culture and something that most of us struggle with. I am talking about our obsession with self-improvement. We all believe that we can change for the better, that we must build a better version of ourselves by consciously pursuing self-help strategies. In 2020, the self-help industry was valued at roughly $40 billion worldwide. Business analysts forecast that it will grow rapidly over the next few decades. The main impetus for this industry comes from a relentless quest to embellish our brand equity. We try to improve ourselves to unleash our human potential and become more productive. Like machines, we want to constantly upgrade ourselves, hoping that we will reap rich dividends at work, boost our careers, and make ourselves attractive to others. Though laudable, self-improvement is fraught with challenges. Giving up our old habits can be a humbling experience. Yet, we persist, convinced that we are pursuing a noble end. Most people think that self-help is all about self-realization and self-optimization. There is more to self-help, though, than we imagine. Our views on self-improvement ultimately tell us not only who we are, but also how we think about others. They have far-reaching consequences, not only for our personal lives, but also for how we relate to others and the collective choices we make as a society. Dr. Anna Schaffner, a professor of cultural history at the University of Kent in the United Kingdom, has written a fascinating book on this topic. Her book, The Art of Self-Improvement, Ten Timeless Truths, was published by Yale University Press in September 2021. Drawing on an exhaustive historical survey of the main themes animating the self-help literature, Dr. Schaffner posits that over centuries, Self-help has revolved around five basic human needs, social relations, status, learning, 
variety, and altruism. She also identifies what she describes as 10 timeless truths that all self-improvement books and programs emphasize. They include time-honored verities we were taught growing up. Know thyself. Control your mind. Let it go. Be good. Be humble. Simplify. Use your imagination. Persevere. Mentalize and be present. Commonsensical though they might seem, these ideas have morphed over time and acquired new shades of meaning, not all of them salutary. In a seminal analysis, Dr. Schaffner traces the transformation of what was once the slow, painstaking endeavor of self-cultivation to extreme forms of self-enhancement, such as transhumanism, drug-induced cognitive enhancement, and the practice of augmenting our sensory and information processing abilities through subdermal implants, popularly known as biohacking. These ominous trends show no signs of abating. The siren song of self-improvement has an overpowering, vice-like grip on our collective psyche. Largely, this is an eloquent commentary on the bewilderingly dystopian aberrations of our epoch. For instance, smartphones have destroyed an entire generation and made us all digital slaves. Most of us suffer from nomophobia, the fear of being without our mobile phone. This has led to pathological levels of self-obsession and the eclipse of civic values. We think self-improvement will extricate us from this moral morass. Think again. If only it was that simple. Dr. Schaffner cautions us that the self-help landscape is a jungle. She points out that it comprises a whole range of offerings, from rigorous, evidence-based prescriptions to the wildly esoteric, from performance-enhancement-driven approaches to manuals telling us simply to do as we please. This however, is not the only problem. Dr. Schaffner draws our attention to the less obvious aspects of self-improvement. She argues that the idea of self-improvement is bound up with several profound philosophical, psychological, and sociological questions. These include our very notion of selfhood, as well as concepts such as agency, willpower, and personal responsibility. According to Professor Schaffner, the self-improvement literature provides a powerful barometer of the aspirations and fears that preoccupy us at a particular historical moment. All successful works of self-improvement, she says, 
speak to our most acute concerns. Love it or loathe it, self-improvement is here to stay. The best iterations of this phenomenon symbolize the triumph of human effort over determinism. Yet, questions abound. Does self-improvement actually work? If its impact is minimal, is it a neoliberal ploy to distract us and foster subservience? The truth, Dr. Schaffner avers, lies somewhere in the middle between exaggerated claims of efficacy and a wholesale rejection of its ability to augment our human potential. To explore these issues in detail, I am joined now by Dr. Anna Schaffner. Welcome to Ideas and Insights, Professor Schaffner. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me on your show, Professor Rao, and thank you for the wonderful introduction to my book. You're very welcome. Let's begin with the reasons why you wanted to write a book like this. What was your motivation? Yeah, basically, I've always been very interested in psychology and in personal development. Um, and I have read a fair share of self-help over the years. Um, so as an extreme introvert by nature, um, I often feel socially awkward. And um, I sometimes feel that I have a very stern and um, unkind superego. And so I have always been looking for cures for these conditions. Um, I would also say that I have grown up with a very strong internalized belief that we can and must improve ourselves. Um, sort of a residue of a Protestant work ethic extended to the self. Um, and I think a very natural idea that has always been with me all my life was that we should always work on ourselves um, and strive to improve ourselves. And at some point, I began to question this assumption. Um, and I also realized that most of our self-help is really deeply ideological. So self-help, I would argue, is not just harmless advice literature. It very powerfully shapes our aspirations and our values and our behaviors. And as you have um, mentioned in your introduction, Professor Rao, it's also a massive industry, which is worth almost $40 billion worldwide. Um, and self-help, I think, is a really, really interesting topic because it is very um, specifically based on conceptions of selfhood. And it is also always tied up with notions of purpose, agency, responsibility, and how we see the relationship between the individual and society. And for that very reason, I think it's a, a deeply rewarding topic to explore. So if, for example, you were to look at Jordan Peterson's best help, um, self-help bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos, um, that is, I would argue, essentially a culture war text. Um, it's much more about philosophical and political assumptions about human nature and a corresponding social order than it is about imparting actual self-improvement advice. And this is true of many other self-help texts as well. Um, although generally speaking, those assumptions are not so explicitly stated. Um, and I do think that overall, the assumption that we should be working on ourselves, this kind of 
broad, strong cultural imperative um, is a really, really strong expectation in our times. And many of us, including myself, have internalized it quite unquestioningly. And I did wonder, where does this come from? You know, was it always like this? And also, if we are to drill deeper, what does self-improvement actually mean? What is our current understanding of the self? What counts as improvement and why? So for example, why should um, it be considered an improvement to become more extroverted when we might naturally be quite introverted? And these are, in a nutshell, the kind of questions that motivated me to write the book. And as a cultural historian, I was, of course, also very interested in what changes and what remains the same when it comes to self-improvement advice. Um, and a core question uh, that, you know, that drove me to write this book is what we can learn from our ancestors and from other cultures. And I believe that um, the best advice really is, is to be found in the past. Thank you for that, Professor Schaffner. You have identified five basic human needs and 10 timeless truths, as you call them, based on your survey of self-help literature. Is it fair to assume, therefore, that these five needs and 10 truths that you discuss in your book constitute the quintessence of self-help? Um, I, I would say that the 10 timeless truths that I, um, they, they suggested themselves to me. So I, I read a huge amount of um, wisdom literature, philosophical texts, religious texts, and modern self-help. And um, they were the themes that came up again and again and again, quite naturally. Um, I would argue they run through the self-improvement literature of the ages. And they are, as you mentioned at the beginning, know yourself, control your mind, let it go, be good, be humble, simplify, use your imagination, persevere, mentalize, and be present. Um, and I would say that most advice literature touches on at least one or more of, of these 10 um, themes. And I haven't really come across texts or practices that would not fit into one of these 10 categories. Um, so I would, I would say that most self-help psychotechnologies, old and new, uh, would fall into one of these categories. And there are nuances, of course, there are subcategories, but um, in my view, these are the 10 most important ones. The quest for self-improvement is as old as humankind. As a genre, self-improvement or self-help literature came into existence when Samuel Smiles published his book, Self-Help, in 1859, 162 years ago. Since then, we've had a plethora of books, programs, training sessions, and so on. Yet, we see people continue to be selfish, callous, duplicitous, and so on. The question then, Professor Schaffner, is, do you think self-help makes a difference? Is it effective? Okay, I think 
Professor Rao, you asked uh, two questions here. So one is, um, can self-help, does has self-help improved um, humankind? Have we made progress as a species? Um, and that is a really tricky question to answer. I would say in some ways, yes, in other ways, clearly, very obviously, no. Um, I do believe that we are much more attuned to psychological nuances, questions. We are more attuned to trauma, to shadows. We're more attuned to how our pasts shape us and how these patterns may continue to influence us in, um, uh, in the present. Uh, and I would consider this enhanced understanding of um, you know, of the patterns that shape us as, as progress, because that also means we, we can um, manage these patterns better and we can find uh, ways of um, coping with them and to enhance them. Um, in, in the sense of uh, personal development, I think we have now a vast plethora of, of different technologies out there from which we can choose. Um, and that choice is on the one hand very confusing and on the other hand it's enriching um, it means that we can choose the technologies, the methods, the theories that appeal to us, that are relevant for our very unique personal challenges um, and that we can actually create our own uh, self-help menu that is tailored to our very very unique and specific needs. In that sense um, I would say self-improvement self and self-help has um, and continues to work. Uh, it continues to uh, give us frameworks for this timeless human desire to, to improve. And I do think the desire to improve ourselves has always been with us. I would say that's an anthropological constant that we can trace through the centuries, through the millennia even, um, it's, a, it's a basic human need and a basic human desire. And I would say, given that it's such an old desire, we have um, seen techniques and technologies for addressing this desire evolve. And the richness of the menu from which we can choose, I would say, is, is a sign of progress. You make an interesting point early on in your book, Professor Schaffner. You point out that in the past, self-improvement was all about cultivating oneself. The process was long and painstaking, and it emphasized virtues like fortitude, humility, and so on. Now, self-improvement is all about self-enhancement and self-optimization, as you rightly say in your book. How did this transition come about? Mm, I think that's a very good point. I, I do think this shift is very noticeable. Um, and as you say, Professor Rao, in the ancient wisdom traditions, in the theological and the philosophical literature of the past, there was a very explicit and firm emphasis on being good in an ethical and a moral sense. Um, so that emphasis was related to the virtues, to building character, you know, to being a good person. 
And in the past, there was a very, very big emphasis on altruism and on developing the self in a way that allows us to contribute better to our communities and to the happiness of others. And then in the 20th century, um, for a variety of reasons, this emphasis shifted from being good in an ethical, pro-social sense to becoming good or rather better at something in a competitive sense. So um, most of our modern self-help really is about becoming a better communicator, a better salesperson, a better lover, a more productive worker. It is about becoming more efficient and more productive. And um, although there are exceptions, and um, I will talk about these a bit later, and I think we see a slight changing of this pattern at, at the current moment. Um, but it's undeniable that um, there was this shift from better in an ethical sense towards better in a competitive sense. Um, and I would also argue that the metaphors have changed. So nowadays, the brain as a computer metaphor is, is ubiquitous. We can find it everywhere. So we talk about reprogramming ourselves, upgrading, fine tuning, rewiring. We talk about cognitive overload, switching off. You know, we talk about our psychological malware, behavioral glitches, and so on. And I would argue that these are actually quite dangerous metaphors, quite damaging metaphors, because we are in no ways like computers. We are very complex organisms and we interact dynamically with our environments. We're messy and needy creatures with desires and histories, very unique histories that shape us. Um, we are really embedded in cultured and embodied beings. So we are in no ways like machines. And to model our self-help technologies on machine-like entities, I believe is damaging because metaphors really matter. Um, language shapes experience and the concepts we use to think about our inner life shape how we experience this inner life. So I think we need to be very discerning about the kind of metaphors that we accept when we talk about our inner life. Professor Schaffner, you argue in your book that self improvement is a rebellion against determinism. Yet, as you will agree, there are a lot of aspects of human behavior that we don't fully understand. Thus, for example, we don't know what aspects of our behavior are amenable to change and what aspects are just our constitutional proclivities, how we are made. Given this limitation, do you think self-improvement is inherently limited as an enterprise, in that it works in some cases and does not in others? That's a very, very good question. And I think it brings us to the heart of the matter, really, because I think with self-improvement, we have to be realistic and modest, and we have to find the middle ground between two extremes. One is um, the deterministic view that you describe, you know, the idea that you know, we're basically predetermined by our genes, by our upbringing, by our socioeconomic circumstances, and there's nothing we can do at all to, to change ourselves. And some philosophers talk about um, you know, they question the concept of willpower and, and argue that we are 
predetermined by you know various um, biological processes that are highly complex and that you know free will is an illusion i think if we um if we take this extreme deterministic view of course self-improvement would be a mood enterprise um but just as dangerous is to over emphasize our ability to change ourselves um, you know, this idea that we are tabula rasas, empty projection planes, that we can magically transform ourselves, that we can become completely different people by, you know, applying some willpower, learning certain psychotechnologies and, um, you know, following the advice of various different self-help gurus. Um, I think both of these extreme positions are highly dangerous because one results in helplessness, um, nihilism, and um, you know dejection. The other results in um, I think feelings of guilt and shame because if we assume that we are infinitely shapeable, it must be our fault if we don't manage. And I think a lot of self-help and backfires in that way by raising our expectations, by promising us you know the sky, by you know showing arguing that it is possible com com to change absolutely completely to dramatically transform our personalities um, by sort of promising magic bullets and then if we don't manage if our lives don't change this must be our fault so i'm i'm a big fan of of the middle ground narratives you know the kind of um self-help theories and models that assume that yes we have personalities we have preferences yes we are shaped by our upbringing we're shaped by our socioeconomic circumstances um, but there's also a window of opportunity in which we can um, meaningfully take action to work on our very unique personal challenges and i do believe that is possible and i do believe there are some great strategies out there that will make us um, you know, we make it possible for us to, to make small incremental progress. And that might sound a bit, you know, disappointing as, as a finding, but I do, I do believe small incremental progress is, is not to be underestimated and um, is, in fact, um, is in fact what we should be aspiring to, you know, that neither over promises nor under promises um, what, what our potential is. I quite like the balanced perspective you have on the possibilities and limitations of self-help. But I'm sure you will agree that not all proponents and practitioners of self-help uh, share your uh, balanced views. In fact, if you look at a number of works in the self-help genre, ones that you have discussed so uh, uh, incisively in your work, the entire genre appears to be predicated on this premise that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. So self-help tends to privilege human effort, which is desirable in some sense, as we all know, yet it ignores the fact that we are shaped a great deal by our unelected circumstances. The self-help literature does not seem to pay much attention to it. And the upshot, some might argue, would be that 
those that believe in and practice self-help would look down upon those that cannot partake of it and those that cannot change their lives around. Is that a fair statement? I think it is. And I think, you know, what you just described is actually exactly the point where self-help becomes a political question in the deeper philosophical and touches on deeper philosophical conceptions of, you know, human nature, free will and personal responsibility and agency. Um, if we overestimate that agency, yes, we, we, we might, you know, look down on people who um, don't have the power to self-improve. And I think that's a very dangerous position to take um, because we, we cannot ever judge um, to what extent someone is theoretically possible to self-improve or not. And um, we can, you know, make that judgment for ourselves, but we cannot make it for others because we don't know their history and we don't know um, what their circumstances are. And I do think uh, the self-improvement literature that basically represents everything as a question of willpower and effort is very dangerous, you know, because that's where it becomes very political. Um, that basically assumes that we're all on a level playing field, um, you know, not just economically, but also with regards to personal development. And, and that is simply not the case. Um, and I think some self-help literature is, is very dangerous in that sense, because it might, you know, generate on the one hand, a sense of elitism, like I'm better than you because I, you know, managed to uh, manage my weight, I managed to be economically successful, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, on the other hand, I think it results in guilt. Um, because all the people who, who read those kind of texts who don't manage will feel like, Oh, my God, I must be a failure. It must be my personal fault that I can't do this. Let's talk about another important point you make in the book, namely, that self help literature is a barometer of the times in which people live, the values and aspirations that are most central to their lives. You also say that in keeping with these aspirations, our understanding of selfhood itself changes. Now, if you look at the entire corpus of writings on self-help, how would you characterize our changing understanding of selfhood? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's another really, really important point. Um, because all self-improvement theories are based on very specific conceptions of the self. And conceptions of the self, historically speaking, um, change and they also change in different cultures and in our time I think we have a plethora of different conceptions of self out there depending on who you talk to so a sociologist would define the self very differently from a psychologist or a, um, or a biologist or a philosopher um, and I would say when we look at history the main change in self narratives and self conceptions across the centuries is that in Western societies, we now see the self as autonomous and isolated, whereas in the past and in many Asian societies, the self is understood as essentially relational. 
Um, and our dominant narrative is the individualist narrative of the self. Um, and it very much casts the self as an independent agent in control of herself and her environment with a relatively fixed identity. Um, other conceptions of selfhood are more fluid and placing an emphasis on context, on interrelatedness and interbeing. Um, but I think at the moment we're witnessing a really interesting return to an emphasis on our interconnectedness. And I see that as a very positive development um, because clearly the individualist model of selfhood is in crisis. Um, maybe even in its death row. So COVID-19 has, of course, contributed to this, but many other factors too. Um, and I think this crisis has been brewing for a long time. And um, it is therefore really high time that we learn to reappraise older and alternative models of being and of thinking about the self. Um, and related questions are, you know, do we think about the self as uh, predominantly good or bad, as predominantly rational or emotional? Do we think as the self as a powerful agent able to exercise free will at all times, or as shaped by internal or external forces? And these are really, really crucial questions that will um, determine the kind of cures um, for our problems. Um, Another related idea is, do we think of ourselves as uh, primarily material or spiritual beings? Do we see ourselves as lone warriors out there in hostile territories to secure our own advantages? Or do we see ourselves as embedded parts of communities or of specific ecosystems or as a part of nature as a whole? Um, and I think partly these views of the self are uh, culturally determined. Um, partly, they are also political in nature. You point out in your book that uh, the self-help literature is littered with different perspectives. Stoics, for example, emphasize rationality. And influenced by Stoicism, uh, cognitive-based therapies also uh, want us to, for instance, uh, confront our negative thoughts uh, and dis disempower them. ACT, on the other hand, which is, uh, you know, a completely different perspective, does not want you to confront your negative thoughts. It wants you to focus on the positive. Buddhists want you to observe your mind in a non-judgmental manner. There are thus differing perspectives on how one should approach self-help. Someone who does not have your kind of broad perspective and initiation into this literature is likely to be confused and might have distorted understanding of issues. Is that a fair criticism? I would say so, yes. And um, I would say that it is of the essence to be discerning about the kind of self-help we, we consume and the kind of regimes and trends we follow. And the most dangerous 
the most dangerous thing I think we can do is to follow trends. <laughs> um, I think it is essential that we understand our unique challenges and also what speaks to us. Um, and that will be very, very different from person to person. I don't think there's a self-help regime or a self-help theory out there that is a um, you know one size fits for all kind of panacea that will address everyone's problem. I think what works um, for individuals is very, very unique and dependent, dependent on um, unique challenges, unique preferences, um, and also, you know, what, what, what speaks to us, what, what appeals to us. Um, so I would say it's very important, first of all, to, to work on our self-knowledge. The starting point always has to be self-knowledge. You know, before we can improve ourselves, we have to know what there is and what we want to improve and how we may improve it um, is the next step. So I think self-knowledge um, and know thyself is my first chapter for a reason. We need to understand our own patterns, desires, fears, strengths, weaknesses. We need to understand how our pasts have shaped us and how they continue to do so in the present. And only then can we decide on what we need to improve and why and how. Um, and the trick really is to find out what works for us. So are we very rational minded? Um, are we more emotional? Are we introverts? Are we extroverts? You know, do we have a romantic nature or are we, you know, hyper um, factual in our approaches? So, so, you know, that will already tell us what kind of self-help regimes we might be able to um you know to to sympathize with which which regimes may uh, chime with us um and i do hope that my readers will be drawn to one or two chapters in particular you know there, there will always be the one theme um of those 10 that really resonates um with someone and i think that will be the unique starting point um and that will be very different for each person so we all, I think, have very unique lessons to learn and challenges to master. Um, and so it's very important to understand what these are um, and to be very discerning. So I, for example, really have to work on being present and on letting go, um, on not constantly planning the future and you know striving for the next thing. So I'm very driven and I struggle to pause and to appreciate beauty. Um, and for me, that is my, my great challenge, you know, to spend more time on connection, to feel grateful for what I have and to be more present in, in the here and now. The points you make, Professor Schaffner, are going to work if someone has the kind of self-awareness that you are talking about. We know that in most instances that is not the case. And when we have people who are not trained in discursive thinking, who are not given to reflection too much, but would like to uh, improve themselves, if they come across self-help literature that uh, valorizes positive thinking, you know the work of Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, the Secret by Rhonda Burns, all of these works gave one the impression that you only have to have positive thoughts and 
miracles will come to pass. We know better than that. Is it not therefore fair to say that self-help could induce in people magical thinking and might mislead them? I, okay, first of all, I would say that um, what, what appeals to people and what speaks to people is very, very unique. And um, at the same time, I think there are some self-help uh, sub-genres out there that I personally find very problematic. And, and you've just named um, some of the texts that would fall into that category. And I would like to explain why I do find them problematic, because basically these texts are all victim blaming. You know, they say everything bad, especially Rhonda Burns, The Secret, uh, the basic idea is one of uh, cosmic magnetism, i.e. the idea that our thoughts attract what happens to us. And if we think positive thoughts, um, only good things will happen to us. And if we think negative thoughts, um, we, will attract, we will attract calamity and catastrophe into our lives. And basically, it is our fault, because if we do not control our thoughts, um, then what is happening to us is our personal responsibility and that's obviously for obvious reasons a really really problematic um theory because it is victim blaming um you know it is even extended to you know accidents to um historical calamities such as genocides um even the holocaust there is in in the secret there's a suggestion for example that the Jews just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, thinking negative thoughts, and that's um, why the Holocaust happened. And that is obviously deeply troubling and um, deeply dangerous territory. And I think quite a lot of esoteric texts uh, verge into that direction, overestimating our power to shape our own fate. Um, and as a consequence, uh, holding us responsible for anything that may happen to us. Um, and of course, that's a crass and dangerous overvalorization of, of, of agency. Um, so you agree, Professor Schaffner, that uh, if someone is gullible, they are likely to be misled. And mm -hmm. that is something that should give us some cause for concern. Would you agree? I would say that there are, you know, bad apples in the self-help industry, absolutely. Um, and I would say there are books out there that are likely to make us feel worse um, rather than better. Uh, you know, especially the kind of magical thinking literature also, you know, doesn't encourage us in any way to take um, wholesome and uh, productive steps towards changing our lives. And it's, it's just a kind of way of, of, of dreaming, you know, and, and imagining, um, you know, that, I don't know, checks for $20,000 will magically, um, you know, flutter through our letterbox. And that, that kind of thinking may be soothing, you know, and I think it will um, temporarily uh, give us some respite and while we're reading books of that kind we may feel temporarily better and more hopeful but i think in the long run um 
those kind of texts are, are, are bound to be quite, quite damaging. Let me move now, Professor Schaffner, to two uh, major criticisms that are often made against this self-help enterprise. I've spoken a little bit about the first one, and that is this turn toward extreme forms of self-improvement, uh, such as transhumanism and biohacking. As you will, I hope, agree, these trends are uh, disturbing, and uh, since they pass off as self-enhancement strategies, they will acquire a level of acceptability that must also make us worried. Would you agree? Yeah, I think I would say the, you know, the whole kind of um, transhumanist biohacking, um, technological self-enhancement um, domain is, for me, ultimately not, not true self-enhancement because you require external aids, right? You need technology, you need people who implant that technology, um, and it is also not something which you have worked for yourself. It's not something earned. Um, and uh, for me, I think I have this sort of old-fashioned Protestant notion that you have to have to earn these kind of things. You know, you have to have worked for them. Um, and and I think just kind of, you know, inserting implants or swallowing drugs or um, or getting other kinds of enhancers um, is is something that it feels to me like cheating. So I, I don't consider that real self improvement. Not not of the kind of you know moral, ethical, psychological kind that that I'm interested in. Let's now move on to the next criticism, and this is often uh, made by people on the left. They say that the self-help enterprise emphasizes things like competition, efficiency, optimization, and so on, all of which are neoliberal values. And they therefore say that this whole business of improving oneself is driven by the logic of neoliberal development and not much else. What do you think? Yeah, I'm I'm familiar with the academic critique of self-help. Um, and I would say that in parts it is justified and in others it is really not. So a key problem that I see is that we, first of all, cannot just condemn and dismiss an entire genre as though it were a monolithic corpus of self-help. You know, it's it's like saying the novel is bad or, you know, cinema is bad um you know just as there are very good novels and good films out there and bad films there are rightful and problematic works of self-help out there um it's a very very diverse literature and um and i would say there are helpful texts out there and less helpful texts also the values that um, are propagated by self-help are always a reflection of the values of our time um, you know, I think Margaret Atwood wrote somewhere that um, every every century gets the self-help it deserves. So, so I would say um, 
self-helps are also always a reflection of um, broader cultural developments out there and as such they're interesting um, and I would say that this academic critique of self-help as, as a kind of, you know, human efficiency enhancement industry is also predominantly based on works from the 1980s and the 1990s, um, in which neoliberal values were indeed more dominant. Um, and it is true, I'm not going to argue against that, that texts like Tony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within and so on, do mainly promote effectiveness and enhancement techniques and self-optimization strategies that are designed to make us more productive. Um, but that was the 1980s and the 1990s. And I would say that self-help has moved on and many academics have not. But they then, are now there. You, yes. I was struck by the fact that you categorically state that mindfulness, which uh, big corporates favor a lot, uh, is definitely not an opiate for the masses. Now, the mindfulness segment of the self-help industry itself is estimated to be around $4 billion. It's growing. And yes, there is some benefit to be derived from the practice of mindfulness. However, I put it to you. If someone is working in the gig economy or the platform economy, and the person has to work literally 16 to 18 hours a day to barely survive. I'm not making this up. This situation obtains across the world and many people are stuck in these kind of dead-end jobs. Do you think mindfulness is even a possibility, an option for these people? given their extraordinarily precarious circumstances? I think there are mindfulness techniques out there that can easily be integrated, even into very busy days, even into uh, trickier lives. Um, and I would say that um, mindfulness, um, as it is often um, sold and yeah, but packaged, Forgive me, is, Professor Schaffner. Yeah. I, I want to uh, remind you that a lot of these works, they are driven by algorithms. And you have to be on your feet. And if you don't, there are severe penalties. Mindfulness presumes that you have a measure of stability, you have a bit of leisure, that you have the time, the temperament, the tenacity, and the training to leverage the benefits of mindfulness. I'm asking about people who do not have any way of accessing the benefits of mindfulness. What about them? And their numbers are growing, as you will agree. Yeah, I think we, we can we could say that um you know all any focus on on psychology and improving psychology is um requires a certain you know stable 
life a life stable enough in which you in which you have time in which you have resources in which you have energy to dedicate to these kinds of activities and um in that sense you know there is we come back to what we discussed at the beginning of of um this interview that there is a huge inequality out there regarding who can and who cannot self-improve I, I would say with mindfulness that um it has been packaged in such a way that you know um you can integrate it even into into a busy day and mindfulness um as it is popular its popular version i think is mainly a stress relief strategy um and as such it may well work and um i would also say that mindfulness has been quite unfairly attacked by many academics um, you know, who see it as a perversion of the original meditation techniques that had a spiritual dimension, that had a pro-social dimension and so on. But I would say even as a stress relief technique, we shouldn't dismiss it because um, stress is an extremely uh, damaging um, modern phenomenon that um, many people struggle with. And if it helps, why not? You know, and I do also think, you know, this idea that mindfulness is an opiate for the masses that it helps everyone to keep functioning and so on is, is hugely exaggerated because i think mindfulness is nowhere near that powerful um and if you know if some people manage to switch off a little bit in a yoga workshop or mindful lunch break workshops and that prevents them from um being overwhelmed by their stress i think that's that's a good thing and i would not see this as part of a big neoliberal conspiracy uh, that, you know, wants workers to um, function until they fall over and burn out and mindfulness is part of that just to keep them going. I think that's a very cynical reading of mindfulness. All right, we will have to uh, leave it at that in the little time that we have. We are almost out of time. Let me end this interview by drawing your attention to one last point. Confucius in China saw self-improvement as something that one has to undertake for communal well-being, for social improvement. Immanuel Kant, the 18th century German philosopher and enlightenment thinker, also was of the same view. He believed that we must improve ourselves for the greater good of society. From there, we have now moved to the point where the focus is almost entirely on oneself. Now this has grave consequences for uh, civic uh, values, for our collective lives and so on. What's your response quickly in about a minute? Yeah, I would say that for me, the aim of all self-improvement worth its salt is um, to enhance the self so that it can direct as much energy as possible outwards. So I think ultimately self-improvement is always about um, us becoming more pro-social, more able to give, more able to direct our energy to people and worthy projects. You know, it's, it's about making sure that our energy is not used up internally in unconscious battles and inner warfare. So it's for me, it is about reducing the extent to which we are driven by old patterns and um, it's about not being a puppet of our shadows. Improving the self is therefore always already 
a pro-social act because the improved self, as I understand it, is um, quite simply more in control of her reactions and therefore more able to give to others and to contribute more powerfully in the outside world. All right. Thank you very much, Professor Schaffner, for spending time with us and sharing your thoughts on self-improvement. I am grateful to you. That's it for this interview. Thank you once again. Thanks for joining us today. Next week, I will introduce you to a new book by Professor Erin Daly, Professor of Law and H. Albert Young Fellow in Constitutional Law at Widener University in Delaware. A new edition of Professor Daly's book, Dignity Rights, Courts, Constitutions, and the Worth of the Human Person was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press last year. Professor Daly, a co-founder of the Dignity Rights Project, explores the evolution of dignity from an inchoate idea to an enforceable right recognized throughout the world. Join us next week for an exciting discussion with Professor Daly. Until then, stay safe and goodbye.